And in the same way that the different aspects of, of who Christ is are, are necessary and helpful and, and good for us, um, there's different responses that are required from us, as we sang about. There's, there's the response of we, we look and we gaze at His character, and sometimes there's just this, as Pob said, there's this overwhelming desire of, yeah, praise Him, hallelujah, that wells up within us. And then there are other times when we gaze on His holiness and His majesty, and the only proper response is to, to fall down before Him in, in worship. Sometimes silence. Sometimes just awe and, and meditation at who He is. And, and it's not one or the other. And sometimes I, I hear conversations of, oh, well, you know, if, if Jesus showed up, you would fall down. Well, you might. But you also might stand and, 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 and praise Him and, and call your friends and your neighbors and say, come look. We need to be careful not pigeonhole our Savior into one thing. Nor do we need to fall into the trap of always responding to Him the same way. If you always respond to Him the same way, then my challenge would be look and gaze at all of His character. It might cause us and allow us to respond to Him different ways. We are nearing the end of our time in the book of Genesis as we look at the life of Joseph. Lately, it's been the life of, of Jacob, kind of a, a redux, a redo of, of what we did about a year ago or so. We're in Genesis 49. If you want to be turning there this morning, Genesis chapter 49, and there's an outline in the bulletin. I think there are some in the back. If you need one, Linda's in the nursery this morning. A couple of announcements, things to be aware of. Number one, uh, Sarah Gray flew out of Raleigh this morning, and then she flies out of D.C. tonight. So be in pray for them and a safe trip and for her parents as well as uh, their youngest is, is heading off on a wonderful adventure this summer. She has, oh, because of weather. Yeah. Soon. Okay. Some point in time today, hopefully... She will find herself in D.C. and then find herself across the pond. And then, uh, yes? Okay. Another appointment. Try to figure out what's going on with John's eyes. And to pray for them. And then Wednesday, Chad and Aaron go to Nashville uh, as they go to their assessment time with the Church Planning Network launch. So pray for them, Chad and Aaron, and also for the people as they assess each other. Is it a good fit? Uh, for both of those people. So we pray for them. That's Wednesday through, I forget, Saturday, Friday, Wednesday through Friday. We'll do that. Anything else? Bo? Uh, camp begins tomorrow. See you guys. Alright. Snowbird welcomes their first cruise. Strong Rock welcomes theirs today. Snowbird tomorrow. Yep. So staff is trained. Good. Be in prayer for them. They're ready. Is that excitement or tiredness? I, yeah, I wanted to. <laughs> Yeah, but for a good time, that uh, kids would grow and see God for who He is, and that the staff would grow and see God for who He is, and be helpful and beneficial. Anything else this morning? Genesis 49 is where we are. Um, we have seen throughout uh, the narrative of, Jesus, of Joseph's life this theme of feast and famine, of things going poorly and things going great, of a literal famine and a literal feast. This morning we see that again as Joseph on his deathbed 
blesses his children. If you remember way, way back last year when we spent some time looking at uh, life of Jacob, we saw that Jacob was a scoundrel and he, um, depending on how you look at it, stole, stole or bought Esau, who was the firstborn, bought his birthright. Esau didn't really care about that much. Yeah, you can have it. I'm, I'm about to die. What good is future land to me if I'm about to die? You can have my birthright. You can have the rights of the firstborn. But later on when Jacob stole his blessing, Esau wept and pleaded and begged and was furious because he lost his father's blessing. Because he missed out on having his father pronounce blessing and prosperity to him in the future, which may very well have included some kind of role of authority figure in the clan, in the family. Whether or not he had the right amount of land or not, the blessing would often bestow a sense of authority. You are now the father of the clan. You're now the head of the clan. You're now the one that your brothers and your grandchildren will look up to. And Jacob stole that from him. And so Jacob had it all. And now it was his turn to pass it on to someone else. And we've already seen that he's passed on the birthright to Joseph. He's given him the double blessing of land. But in 49, before he dies, he calls all 12 of his children together and he's going to pronounce a blessing on all of them. And what we see is this mingling of consequences for past actions and grace. We read these words in Genesis chapter 49. Then Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the beginning of my strength. Preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Uncontrolled as water. You shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed and you defiled it. You went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their counsel. Let not my glory be united with their assembly. Because in their anger they slew men. In their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob. I will scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who dares rouse him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. Zebulun will dwell at the seashore and he shall be a haven for ships and his flank shall be towards Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between the sheepfolds. When he saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, he bowed his shoulder to bear burdens and became a slave at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. 
Dan shall be a serpent in his way, a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. For your salvation I wait, O Lord. As for Gad, raiders shall raid him, but he will raid at their hills. As for Asher, his food shall be rich, and he will yield royal dainties. Naphtali is a doe let loose. He gives beautiful words. Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a spring. Its branches run over a wall. The archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him. But his bow remained firm and his arms were agile. From the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. From the God of your father who helps you and by the almighty who blesses you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and blessings of the womb. The blessings of your father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, he devours the prey and in the evening, he divides the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. And this is what their father said to them when he blessed them. He blessed them, every one with the blessing appropriate to him. Then he charged them and said to them, I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field from Ephron the Hittite for a burial site. There they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah. There they buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah. And there I buried Leah, the field and the cave that is in it, purchased from the sons of Heth. When Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Let's pray. Father, as we look at your word this morning, I pray that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds and our will to hear, to understand, and then to be obedient. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. The way this is laid out, he, he first blesses all the sons of Leah in order of their birth, and then he blesses the, the children of the two handmaids of Leah and Rachel, and then he blesses the two sons of Rachel. And he does them in order of their birth, and so one would think that Reuben being the firstborn, that he's going to get the blessing, the blessing of authority, the blessing of control of the family, the blessing of headship. And it certainly seems that way as we begin. Reuben, you are my firstborn. Ah, here it goes, everybody says. He's fixing to get what we all really want. My might and the beginning of my strength. Right? That's the same theme, the same idea. Preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power. Not only does he have the right birth, he's the firstborn, He has the right qualities. He has the right characteristics. His dignity, he has power, he's the firstborn. And so we expect the next line to say something about headship or leadership or rulership. And instead we read, uncontrolled as water. See, everything was going for Reuben except the fact that he didn't have any self-control. That word implies recklessness. You've seen uh, a rushing river. You've seen floodwaters. You've seen uh, waves of the ocean crash. They're really uncontrolled. And ultimately, they're reckless because they don't think about what they're doing. They just cause destruction. They don't stop and think, well, should I channel myself 
this way or should I channel my, should I avoid that house or those people? It just, when water is uncontrolled, it just flows. It and wind and rain and pressure and gravity just kind of all combined together to wreak destruction. So despite who Reuben was, he had a fatal flaw. He was uncontrolled. Specifically, lust. He wanted someone that he wasn't supposed to have. He saw Billa, and he said, that's who I want. It didn't matter that, he didn't belo- that she didn't belong to him. She belonged to someone else. He said, that's what I want. And there are consequences for uncontrolled behavior. There are consequences, no matter how much of the right stuff we have, when we allow our sin to control us, it disqualifies us from things like leadership and headship and rulership and a certain place in the family. So even though he was first born, there was no blessing for Reuben. The consequences of his sin was that he, that he lost out. Then Jacob continues, and he takes two brothers together, Simeon and Levi, the second born, the third born. Okay, one of them, but right away we, we get a feeling of something's not right because he deals with them together. And there's no suspense here at all. Their swords are implements of violence. You remember the story back in about ten chapters ago in Genesis Someone had done something unkind to their sister. They'd basically taken her and and raped her and then wanted to marry her. So they concocted a scheme to get back. But they didn't just get back at the man who did it. They got back at everybody in that village. They didn't just take vengeance on one person. They took vengeance on a whole tribe. A whole village. Not just people, but animals as well. Jacob uses words like anger, wrath. said they were cruel. See, for someone to be a leader, for someone to to be in charge of other people, yes, sometimes you have to have a heavy hand, but throughout the Bible, from beginning to end, there is talk of two words that God likes for His kings, His leaders to have, and that's justice and righteousness. There's nothing just about their actions. There was nothing righteous. My hope is that every big brother in here, or little brother in here, would would stick up for their sister. That would be my hope. Is that you would would protect and care for and love your sister and desire justice when something goes wrong. But what Simeon and Levi did was beyond justice. It was cruel. And so Jacob says, let my soul not enter into their counsel. Let not my glory be united in their assembly. In other words, I'm not passing on the headship to these guys. They're not fit to be rulers. Their anger controls them. And there are consequences for that. Whether it's uncontrolled lust or uncontrolled anger, both of those things put Reuben and Simeon and Levi, firstborn, secondborn, thirdborn, out of the picture. And we may begin to wonder, (laughs) 
you know, is he going to go through all of these kids until he gets to Joseph? And we, we kind of know Joseph. We, maybe at this point in time we're expecting, oh, he's going to badmouth everybody until he gets to his favorite son, right? So we come to the fourth born. We come to Judah. And see, we know all about Judah, right? Because he's figured prominently in this story up till now. He's the one that left the family. He's the one that didn't stop Joseph from being sold. He's the one that really didn't console his father. He's the one that left the clan, went off and married a Canaanite, which he weren't supposed to do. Wouldn't take care of his daughter-in-law well. Got caught in a lie, got caught in adultery. The list goes on and on and on. And we go, okay, we, we can already mark him off. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. We take a step back and go, wait a minute. That doesn't seem right. How is he any better than, than these other three knuckleheads we've already talked about? We know his story. He turns around his name. Judah means praise or praise of God. And Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your name's going to be flipped around. You're going to be the, become the one that they're going to look up to. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. This certainly seems like he's giving him the family blessing. Judah's a lion's whelp from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, as a lion who dares rouse him. There's this metaphor of the lion, which in the ancient Near East was a symbol of authority and kingship. So far, nothing but good things. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, the root nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. It's not just to Judah that these promises are now being made. It's, it's going to be carried on. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, meaning from him and his descendants. There's this rulership that's going to be carried out, not only in him, but in his sons. Then we're at the end of verse 10, until Shiloh comes, a, an awfully weird verse to translate in Hebrew and can mean three or four different things. What's funny is, all of those things point to a coming Messiah. Some of your versions may say, until it comes to the one to whom it belongs, or until the ruler comes, depending on which version you have. All of those point to someone else that this rulership, this headship is going to be in the family of Judah until a certain one shows up. There's this expectation of something else. But he doesn't stop there. He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and, the, and his robes in the blood of grapes. And we, if we think about that long enough, we step back and go, that makes about zero sense. You don't tie your donkey to a grapevine. It's not strong enough. You don't wash your clothes in wine. That doesn't solve the problem of dirtiness. But then we think about it a little more and we begin to think about what he's saying, the metaphor, what he's trying to imply is this great abundance. 
Because you see, the grapevines have grown so much and are so strong and are so rooted that you can tie a donkey to it. And wine is so abundant that it's as common as water. Kind of like the, the, the idea of in Jerusalem, the streets are paved, in the New Jerusalem, the streets are paved with gold. Gold is so common that it's used as asphalt. I don't know that anybody will be wearing gold in heaven, but there's just so much of it that they pave streets with it. It's common. Abundance and glory and majesty. And so we use this thing that we as humans kind of worship and adore and long to get our hands on. We, we use it as asphalt. Whoever this one is, the abundance of his reign, the abundance of his rulership, the abundance of his authority will be such that you can tie your donkey to a grapevine because it will be so rooted, so strong that it can't get away. And, and wine is so abundant that you can clean with it. And we might still scratch our heads a little bit. That's still odd. Even if I had all the wine in the world, I'm not sure that I would use it to wash my clothes. But then we, we jump ahead about 1,900 years. And we, we think about what Jesus did in John chapter 2. He took these ceremonial jars that were used for washing and the water that was in them and he turned them into wine. An abundance of wine. More than they needed. Far more than they needed for a wedding. Over a hundred gallons of wine drawn from what was used for ceremonial cleansing. And we stop and think that this His first miracle, this His first sign, points all the way back to Genesis. All the way back to chapter 49, and we go, nah, surely not. Surely that's not what He's talking about. Surely He wouldn't make that statement that this is that time when you will wash in wine. And then we read in Revelation chapter 7, at the very end, okay, I thought it was chapter 7. Oh, it is. It's verse 14, not verse 4. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in white robes, who are they? Where have they come from? I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And then Jesus does something for us. He ties that verse into what he did in John 2 in the upper room when he said, take and drink. This is my blood. This wine 
is my blood, and it will cleanse you. Not just your robes. It won't just make your garments white. It'll make you white. And then we begin to think about abundance a little differently. It's not material possessions. It's not what we can gather around us. It's not that our crops grow huge and then our grapevines are so big around that we can tie a donkey to it and it won't go anywhere. It's that Christ came that you might have life and have it abundantly, spiritually alive and vibrant. That we actually have something to offer to the world. Hope and joy and peace. Because we have forgiveness of sins. But we've got to back up a second. Because we still scratch our head about Judah because he's still a scoundrel except if we remember we read about the fact that he came and confessed his wrong. When all was said and done, when everything was out in the open, you know what, guys? I'm a scoundrel and she's the righteous one. And then he didn't just confess and go back to his ways. He changed. Instead of taking and taking and taking and wanting for himself and trying to protect, he was willing to give of his own life. When he didn't know that Joseph was Joseph, he said, I care more about my dad than I do myself. Please send Benjamin back and keep me. I'm giving up my life. There was confession and there was repentance, and there was change. And because of that, the number four in line rose to the top, even above the favorite son, Joseph. And if we've read anything through this narrative, we know that Jacob and Joseph are like this. Jacob almost worships Joseph. And yet when it comes time to to bestow headship and rulership of the entire clan, he gives it to the one who understands grace. Maybe Joseph understands grace, but he kind of lived a charmed life. Judah knows what it means to mess up and what it means to confess and what it means to sacrifice for someone else. See, there are consequences for our actions. The good news for us is there are consequences for confession and repentance and transformation through the power of the Holy Spirit. And those consequences are that God blesses us and that we get to participate in the abundance of wine being as common as water of forgiveness being more abundant than sin. And so we celebrate that this morning. We celebrate the fact that we can come because of what Christ did. And as a body, brothers and sisters in Christ, partake of the fruit of the vine and the bread that signifies His blood and His body. And allow that to remind us of the abundance that we have spiritually. This small little bite, this small little drink. May it remind us of 
this overflowing well that we serve the one who can take dirty water in a pot and turn it into the best wine that they've ever tasted and more than they need. And so as we come this morning, would you prepare your hearts? Maybe you need to be in an attitude of confession or repentance for something. Maybe you need to come before Christ for the very first time and say, I don't know you, but I'd like to. And I need your cleansing. I need your forgiveness. And then we would invite you to, to partake with us as we, as we share. So would you pray where you are if you want to kneel, stand, sit. And then I will close this and we'll partake together in a moment.